0: Welcome to The Lubbers Hole. You're with Ian and Mike as we reread the Aubrey Matchery novels of Patrick O'Brien. We are partway through our reading of The Ionian Mission. So Mike, can you catch us up? What did we hear about last week? What might be coming up for us this week? You
1: bet, Ian. Well, last week was our musical December holiday gift. We had Jack playing through the Bach Chaconne and our interview with Professor David Curtin. Thank you, David. That was awesome. Uh, we had a celebration of music in the canon. Uh, in the story, Awkward Davis came aboard. Jack developed a bad cold and Rear Admiral Hart boo, Hiss boo. sent Jack and William Abington on a mission into the swirling Byzantine politics of the Barbary States. Byzantine, Byzantine. Yeah. Potato, patata. Tomato, tomato. Exactly. (laughs) Jack was a bit suspicious and he made Hart give him his orders in writing as Hart really tried to give him the bums rush out the door and send him on his way. This week, the Dryad and the Worcester set off to rendezvous with the Polyphemus and complete their mission. We muse on what is and is not poetical. And Stephen Matron away on an intelligence mission, misses a rhinoceros and thousands of flamingos. Jack's cold continues to dog him. He misses Stephen, and we have the possibility of some unexpected action, usually the perfect thing to set up our hero, Jack Aubrey.
0: And we would so like him to get set up, wouldn't we? He's been on a bit of a low turn as our friend Jack, and we're really hoping that some of this story is going to take him in the direction of some kind of redemption. Uh, So... We've, Mike, we've got the possibility of a voyage. We've got a departure here. O'Brien writes here, The Worcester and the Dryad had hardly sunk the squadron's topsails below the western horizon before the sun came out and the breeze increased so that the sparkling blue was flecked with white horses. And Mike, this idea of the white horses, this starts a bit of a conversation going between Babington and Jack. It
1: does. It does. It was interesting. Jack comments. He says, Buttons, the French call them, observed Captain Aubrey in his thick, cold-ridden voice. Do they indeed, sir, said Captain Babington. I never knew that. What a curious notion. Well, you could say that they are as much like sheep as they are like horses, said Jack, blowing his nose. "But, But sheep ain't poetical, whereas horses are. Are they really, sir? I was not aware. Of course they are, William, nothing more poetical, except maybe doves, Pegasus, and so on. Think of that fellow in the play that calls out, my kingdom for a horse. It would not have been poetry at all had he said sheep. (laughs) Well, Ian, this white horses thing, this was new for me, but I understand pretty common for you.
0: Well, yes, it's a common phrase used to describe the state of the sea when you get um, little breaking peaks on waves. And if you turn... To the old Beaufort scale in fact not so old the Beaufort scale that's still used in lots of countries including the UK for forecasting and describing weather white horses is used as a kind of scientific description to talk about these breaking caps on waves that you get when the wind is blowing more than about 10 or 11 knots so white horses pretty routine I would say as a as a naval description but we've got this brilliant Little piece of Aubreyism going on here. He's picked up on the idea that the French might call them something else, and Jack says button, and Mike, I think the French might be talking about mutton.
1: Yeah, so you know it's really something like you said. This real Aubreyism, this between buttons and muttons, that the French here, and, and and your French is so much better than mine would ever hope to be, that this word is mutton or mouton yeah. in French. So I guess Jack has taken the. The mutton made it sound like button, but the meaning being in English for mutton being sheep. And now we're sheep not being poetical here.
0: Yeah. By, by the way, I'm going to put in a vote for it. sheep can be poetical. You know, ask, ask William Wordsworth. I think he could write poetically about sheep. But we even looked on a French translation website. And somebody who's an authority on the language said that the French people do call White wave caps, white horses, as we'd say in British English. They do actually call them sheep. Mouton, mouton means vague écumeuse d'une mer agitée, Fo- foamy or breaking waves on a uh, agitated or rough sea. So there you go.
1: You know, another little uh, O'Brien nugget here. Fascinatingly, as I as I continue digging into to white horses, and and maybe there's a, a couple white horse you know, pictures we could share. There was also. Uh, a piece from a scientific website about this white horse's sea waves mystery that says they really only appear when the sun comes out, uh, which turns out to be related to the sun's electricity. So you see these pictures where in shadow you don't see the white horses, but in sun you do. So I think the doctor would uh, would certainly enjoy that. And, and O'Brien's very careful to point out that they only show up when the sun comes out here.
0: Well, it it's funny in my mind's eye mike my image of a of a of a beautiful sailing day with white horses is blue sea blue sky but but i think for white horses to feature in admiral beaufort's description of the sea a description used in the coastal waters around the uk I think you've got to to expect that you might just be able to see some white horses even when the sun is out because it's not unknown for the occasional cloud to be in the sky
1: when you're in British waters. That certainly makes more sense to me, so go figure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So having resolved this question of poetry and not poetry and buttons and moutons and white horses and white caps, Babington goes on to read the orders, the orders that have been passed on from Admiral Hart to Jack, And Babington's pretty sanguine. He says that he thinks the orders sound like nothing but plain sailing. And Jack is kind of wondering why it was that Hart said this was such an important service and why it called for such a reliable, discreet officer. And Hart had said it with this kind of knowing look. So still scratching their heads, I guess. Jack and Babington talk about the possibility of prizes along the way. And Jack points out that they can't chase anything that runs into harbors on the Barbary coast because orders demanded that scrupulous respect will be paid to the laws of neutrality. And as they're having this conversation, Mowat and Pullings joined them, very, very happy, obviously, to see their old shipmate, Babington. They'd all been midshipmen together in Jack's first command. And it's really nice, Mike, that Patrick O'Brien notes that none of them were jealous of Babington getting his step, getting his command. Babington was the youngest of them already a lieutenant likely to be made post in a few years, which puts him on the career track towards Admiral, same as the same career track that Jack is on. Whereas the other two moment pullings, without a fortunate turn in their career or without any interest on their behalf, likely to retire as half-pay lieutenants unless they get some kind of good fortune like taking part in a successful action. So it's nice that they're all able to enjoy Babington's success on its own terms. And meanwhile, they're wondering who the lieutenant might be in command of the Polyphemus, knowing that these officers are desperately obscure. You know, the the lieutenant in command of a transport is likely to be outside all hope of promotion, almost outside the service. And then Pulling says, breby some broken-winded old lieutenant, and with a wry grin, he adds, not but what I may be precious glad to hoist a plain blue pennant and command a transport myself one of these days. Oh, and God bless Thomas Pullings and his gracious humility.
1: <laughs> I, I, I just love this, right, with you know, Moet and Pullings loving Babington's success, not being that, you know, comparing themselves to it, like, which we see so many times in other officers in the Navy here and, and all, all over the world in everything. So these are really gracious people. I do love it. Well, they don't have to wonder long about that lieutenant because they find that the Polyphemus is waiting for them. And Jack describes him as sailing in a most seaman-like manner. So not not at all kind of some old lieutenant that doesn't know what he's doing. It actually turns out to be Patterson, who they know, who's much older. He's one-armed or at least one hand. And his sailing really impresses Jack. And as they draw closer, though, Jack and the entire ship's company's attention are drawn to what appears to be this large gray gun being trundled up and down. And as they get even closer, Jack asks, he says, Mr. Patterson, what is that creature of Baftiformist? It's a rhinoceros, sir, a rhinoceros of the gray species, a present for the Pasha of Barca. What is it doing? It is exercising, sir. It must be exercised two hours a day to prevent its growing vicious. Well, then carry on, Mr. Patterson. Do not stand on ceremony, I beg. No, said Patterson, and to the seaman in
0: charge of the party. Carry on, Clements. (laughs) It's the most bizarre thing. I mean, it's a Patrick O'Brien classic move, right? We have uh, an animal placed almost... Completely out of context aboard a ship. And it's not just any old animal. It's a rhino. Right. So O'Brien goes on. He, he, he describes the behavior of this rhinoceros as it's hoisted up on deck and allowed to exercise. As though some spring had been released, the rhinoceros and its crew started into movement. The animal took three or four twinkling little steps and lunged at Clements's vitals. Clements seized the horn and rose with it, calling out, easy there, old cock, and at the same moment the rest of the party clapped onto the fall of a travelling Burton, hoisting the rhinoceros clear of the deck. It hung by a broad belt round its middle, and for a while its legs ran nimbly on. Clemence reasoned into its ear in a voice suitable to its enormous bulk and thumped its hide in a kindly manner when it was lowered again he led it forward to the foot of the foremast holding it by the same ear and advising it to step lively watch for the roll, and mind where it was coming to not to crush people with its great fat arse and then we have this description of the <laughs> of the rhinoceros walking meekly with only occasional skip and thrust and hoisted again turned and led forward to and fro under the fascinated eyes of the Worcesters until it was brought to the main hatchway. And it's it's such a clear picture in my mind's eye, Mike, of this rhinoceros being gingerly lifted up and permitted to walk a few steps on the on the deck of the ship. And even that like, gives him a ship's biscuit and blindfolds him. And we have this image of the the rhinoceros with its ears down and its legs out sideways being completely transformed into this really meek. Subdued, really scared animal, and we get lots of empathy for the rhino. I think, which again is a classic O'Brien move. I think you have got to wonder where does O'Brien come up with this stuff? You start
1: wondering. Wait a minute. Every time we've had, you know, a praying mantis or something like this, there's some reason that O'Brien puts this in here. What do you What
0: do you think? Well, you have got to wonder. So we're, we're given this outsider's view of. Uh, an apparently big and forceful being lumbering around on the deck of a ship, apparently right. being cared for by well-meaning minded. Is the is the rhino Jack Aubrey? Well, you know, is is this how Jack is meditating on himself as a bit of a pointless, bit but impotent ornament lumbering around on the deck? It's a really dark self-image of Jack. If that's where we're meant to be headed.
1: Right. Right. Jack with this horrible old cold, everybody trying to, you know, pass him handkerchiefs and suggest he go down below and stay out of the damps. And and, you know, he's on this mission from heart. He's really not sure why in the world he's there. It really you know, it really makes you think, well, Jack invites Patterson to come on board tomorrow and dine with him, weather permitting. But the weather is not permitting. And so these three ships are sailing together through the rough seas. Jack's cold continues to get worse. But he doesn't want to consult Lewis, Stephen's assistant, because he feels like that would be being disloyal to Stephen, you know, to talk to somebody else about medical advice. And he wishes over you know time and again that Stephen were there. Um, he does try some of the remedies that his officers suggest, and, and especially the wine seems to be a big hit. He's feeling a little bit better, and so he spreads the ships out so that they cover more territory, hoping they might spot a prize as they cruise along.
0: (laughs) It's funny you mentioned the wine. That reminds me of what somebody described to me as the old French country cure for a cold, which involves a hat and a bed and a bottle of brandy. And you put the hat on the bedpost. You go to bed and you drink brandy until the hat moves all by itself and then you're cured. So maybe that's what Jack needed. I I
1: have all for that. I like that.
0: So Jack's got the ship spread. He's, he's trying to take command right. He's making them into a little squadron. He's got them spread across the seaway because they're going to go through a fairly narrow patch of water here, the stretch of water between Sicily And Malta and North Africa is actually quite narrow, so there's a great opportunity for them to maybe snap up a prize. Unfortunately, they don't see one, but they do learn from some fishing boats that there's a wounded French merchant ship that's passed by the day before. And Mike, that gives us a little enticing idea that there's some Aubrey bait out there, that there's a, there's a vulnerable prize. They're not seeing any though, so Jack consoles himself with a bit of toasted cheese and also with some music. He consoles himself with Christoph Willibard Gluck, German opera composer. I've got no idea what pieces of Gluck Jack might have available to play on his violin, but but why not? Uh, We know that Gluck was famous as a German opera composer. He was certainly a contemporary to the timeline of the novels. He was around in 1714 to 87, and he was famous for adding emotional, musical, and dramatic elements to opera, which was a bit of a revolution. Right. Ah, so, good good old Gluck, as Jack listens through his open skylight, he hears the hands dancing on the forecastle. It was a cheerful sound, says O'Brien, one that he loved to hear as signifying a happy ship. The confused, distant noise, the familiar tunes, the laughter, the clap of hands, and the rhythmic thump of feet was full of memories for him too, as he wandered up and down his spacious, lonely domain, cocking his ear to the sound of, Ho oh, the Dandy kiddio And this is the moment, I think, Mike, that I'd remembered a couple of episodes ago now. Aubrey cut a few heavy lumbering steps in spite of his cold. And this is an image that really comes to the front of my mind's eye, Mike. The, the sick, sneezing, coughing, snorting, cold-ridden Jack Aubrey, probably you know, with his coat buttoned up and his muffler on, dancing a few lumbering hornpipe steps in his cabin.
1: Right, right. And, and kind of thinking back to the days of his youth and, and dancing with them. And O'Brien tells us that that Jack actually falls asleep thinking about those days As as O'Brien writes, the perfect unthinking health, the good company on the whole, no responsibility apart from the immediate task in hand, and he was thinking of the rare, noisy, strenuous, good-natured fun they had when hands were piped to mischief as he fell asleep, smiling still. I love that. Hands piped to mischief line. Clearly, clearly Jack is, is drifting off. I don't believe I've ever heard that one piped on a a ship, but I, I suspect in his mind's eye it was. Although, interestingly, O'Brien adds to this that jack's sleeping mind often strayed sometimes to his wife in garden and sometimes to beds less sanctified
0: hmm. oh. i wonder if that temptation's going to rear its head again in the next chapter or two we'll have to see won't we there you have it yeah thursday dawns and all hands have got laundry hanging out to dry on the deck and jack joins the wardroom for dinner and almost all of the officers are coming back to this idea of folk cures for Jack's cold. They've all got a cure that they want to share or a story of circumstances under which they've caught particularly bad colds, all these old naval wives' tales, like, oh, you get a cold from talking to a woman with your hat off or from having rain falling on your hair. Right. And the, the old thing about uh, starve a fever and feed a cold, well, Jack was heartily feeding his cold. They talked about the rhinoceros, including the story of one on HMS Ariel that had met an unhappy end due to its appetite for Grog, a, deba- a debauched rhinoceros. Ah, okay, going down the same route as sloths and, uh, and, and potos and things in the past. An orangutan. <laughs> yeah, and the orangutan. Exactly. Right. And Jack hears Moat and Rowan. Rowan is a lieutenant who's replacing the disgraced Lieutenant Summers. And Rowan and Moat get into an argument at the end of the table. They're arguing about poetic meter. Rowan says, I may not know what a dactyl is, but I do know that, will you take a piece of cake, is poetry, whatever you say. It rhymes, don't it? And if what rhymes ain't poetry, then what is it? And Jack quite agreed, although he was morally certain that Mowat himself did not know what a dactyl was either. Although he loved him dearly. <laughs>
1: Well, Ian, I have to admit, I had no idea what a dactyl was. What came to mind was pterodactyl, and I thought, you know, is this of Jack course. saying that, yeah. you know dinosaurs and sheep are not poetical, or they are poetical, or yeah, sorry, bad, bad joke there. But but a dactyl, <laughs> a dactyl Ian, you're you're a little more uh, acquainted with verse than
0: I am. What is a dactyl? Well, a dactyl is a metrical foot consisting of one stressed syllable followed by two. Unstressed syllables, so long, short, short, long, short, short, long, like that. Um, it has its origin, according to the internet, in late Middle English. It comes via Latin from the Greek word dactylos, meaning literally finger, and the three bones of the finger correspond to the three syllables, the long and the two short. Ah. And therefore, the idea of a pterodactyl being <laughs> A dinosaur whose fingers have an important function. In this case, they play the—they form the function of a wing. Right. And this is—we're making a connection here. We've got poetry about sheep, and now we've got poetry about fingers. <laughs> we had Jack's earlier instructions to Babington about what's not poetic. Right. More seriously, what, what's going on here? We're being asked to speculate a lot about what poetry is and what it isn't. And Mike, it—it it, it seems to me that there's lots of shifting meaning going on here. You know, things that are presented to us as real descriptions in the real world are symbols for something else, and we're getting allusions to what might be going on, what might be going on with Jack, what's going on with his character, what's going on with his mission, what do we observe, and what's the non-real meaning behind it? What has Admiral Hart said in Jack's orders, and what might be the unspoken meaning behind that as well? There's a little bit of what what I think a literary critic would call semiotic drift <laughs> going on. In the descriptions here. And this poetry stuff, I think, is inviting us to speculate about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, unfortunately, we don't get to hear the end of that particular poetry discussion, because word comes into the to the wardroom that the Dryad, who had parted company for Medina, is now seen headed straight back to the Worcester. And it turns out she is, in fact, flying out from the land with what's described as an extraordinary press of sale, So Jack raises his royals and stasels and the ships fly toward one another. The speed, O'Brien tells us, lifts Jack's heart. But he does notice that his men really need to be better drilled for emergency situations. Anything outside their usual routine, which the lovers seem to have learned. Right now, they're almost killing themselves trying to shift these these unusual sailing uh, sets. And Jack wonders how these people would do in battle as well. The dryad, however, is handling itself beautifully. And, and O'Brien tells us that Babington comes aboard as though there were not a minute to be lost. One of our favorite phrases here. <laughs> the French are in Medina, sir, reports Babington. Are they by God, cried Jack. And Babington's got a little report for him here.
0: Yeah, he says there's a 74 and a 36 gun frigate under the larger of the two batteries guarding the entrance to the Goletta, the long channel leading to the port of Medina. Babington says they didn't fire on him, but that might have been because they were probably as surprised as he was to see each other and didn't give them much time to recover their surprise. So he came flying back to Jack so that they could go back together and destroy them. Lord, sir, says Babington, how I hope they are still there. Well, William, said Jack, we shall soon find out. I might, Babington's absolutely take it, taking it for granted here that the next thing that's going to happen is this little mini squadron under Jack's command is going to hightail it into Medina and do a classic Aubrey dashing, cutting out mayhem, confusion expedition.
1: Right, right. And then, you know, they'll have that all sorted. He'll just go ahead and deliver the dispatches to the council in Medina. They'll complete their mission. They've got a little glory to take back. Maybe pullings and mow it, get their step. You know, this looks like, you know, this is this is where we always go, right? This these are great Patrick O'Brien straight ahead
0: stories. Yeah. So they're they're diverting inshore to the North African shore to this place called Medina. According to our friend Tom Horn and his brilliant website, Canonade.net. Medina is a fictional location, but there are places on the Tunisian shore with salt lakes and a little bit of geography that might perhaps have inspired Patrick O'Brien. And um, if you're going to look on a modern day map, you'd see that this place is somewhere on the north coast of Tunisia, somewhere between Sfax and Tripoli in this kind of corner of uh, of the North African coast here. So we know roughly where they are. Jack is really hopeful that this little French squadron has put to sea. Quite apart, he says, quite apart from the whole thorny question of neutrality an action against moored ships was not unlike a soldier's battle. The unpredictable sea changes weren't there. Superior seamanship could not seize upon a shifting slant of wind the... Tail of a current or a shoal and turn it into a decisive advantage, but would have to fight a motionless opponent, one unaffected by the breeze or the lack of it, with his hands free to fire the great guns or repel borders. At sea, he says, there was room for maneuver, room for luck. And he was a great believer in luck.
1: Wow. And, and and luck has been playing along in this tale, you know, Jack thinking that perhaps his luck is going the other way. So here we're counting on luck heading into an action. Well, Jack sails to where he thinks the French are most likely to be in the morning if they put to sea. Um if he was right, they would have the weather gauge, which could help even the odds. He's thinking to himself that that he could engage the 74 and, and border and take her. He's not worried about that. But he's concerned that the Dryad and the Polyphemus really could not take a well-handled frigate except by very clever maneuvering and help from the Worcester, you know, kind of drawing fire and, and, and using her batteries there. So, you know, in Jack's mind, they would need luck and they would also need a less skillful opponent. But in Jack's kind of rethinking about his encounters with the French, they're not usually less skillful. Well, they sail on. Jack is snorting along the way. He's drinking lots of hot lemon to try to help his cold. And and I, you know, I I want to point out that, you know, we just have not been pointing out all the references that O'Brien keeps inserting about this cold. All of, you know, pooling's telling Jack to go up below to avoid the damp. It really, um, you know, it just keeps repeating itself here. But Jack does seem a little bit up to his old form. Because he's thinking now to engage in this battle, he's going to have to fire both sides of the ship simultaneously. That's not something he's had his crew practice and he's got them on it now. He's got them firing both sides.
0: So as Jack is heading in for Medina, drilling the crew in their gunnery, um, Lieutenant Patterson and the Polyphemus learned that the French have not left the harbour. So Mike, already one of Jack's hopes has been dashed. His hope was that they could engage on the open sea, with room for luck and manoeuvre, but the French have, if anything, moved closer to the mole in Goletta. And Jack notices how young Patterson looks. Patterson's this old grey-haired lieutenant, but his eyes were as bright, it says, as bright as his steel hook. Everyone's elated, everyone's excited about the prospect of going into action, but we hear that Jack wondered at his own lack of joy. This was the first time that the prospect of action had not moved him like the sound of a trumpet. It was not that he dreaded the outcome, although this engagement was of that uncomfortable sort called a point of honor fight, an action where one's force was just too great to allow a decent, unblameable retreat, yet not great enough to give much reasonable chance of success. And he goes on to talk about how Jack's mind is too much oppressed by material worries. And we get this really strong impression, Mike, of a Jack Aubrey who's got doubts. And it's never happened before, as the author says, it's never happened before that Jack on the way into action is in any way inclined to doubt himself or his ship or his crew. And he's got some self-awareness. He recognises that this is a first time for him and he's really unsettled by it. And he shakes it off a little bit by assuming that everything's going to be okay. He assumes that once the dust starts to fly, it will all be okay. So he heads off for Medina as fast as the stiff breeze would carry them
1: yeah it it is really interesting, you know as you point out, you know Jack, we haven't seen this before, and he's you know he he keeps thinking back to about this neutrality and what's the you know the attitude of the Bay of Medina going to be, and you know he's just got these all these other things on his mind, really unusual. They cast aside momentarily as they get closer to shore here because they see all these files of camels ashore. And and O'Brien writes that ten or 20,000 flamingos fly overhead. And, of course, Jack's reaction, we know exactly what Jack's thinking, is how I wish the doctor was here. He says this, and, and he's kind of expecting Pullings to join in, but Pullings only replies with a very formal, yes, sir. And Jack turns to look at Pullings and realizes that all the ship's eyes are focused on him. He knows that they're longing to clear for action. And O'Brien writes that the moral pressure was as perceptible as the warmth of the sun. And after a moment's listening to the sudden outburst of goose-like gobbling from the flamingos, he said, Mr. Pullings, let the hands be piped to breakfast. When they finish, we may go to quarters. And he starts to continue on to say something about them taking advantage before the fires are put out. But he just gets cut off by this incredible fit of sneezing and can't go on. And and O'Brien tells us that instead of inviting pullings at a couple midshipmen to breakfast like he would do routinely and especially before a battle, that O'Brien says that Jack is just too tired from his sleepless night from his cold, and that he eats alone and does not have his usual hearty appetite before battle.
0: And then there's this really telling moment as the carpenter and his crew come to tear down his cabin to clear for action. Jack asks them to take particular care of the doctor's object, this dressing case that's currently doing duty as a music stand with all the ornate decoration and the hidden compartments and drawers and stuff. And the carpenter says, don't you worry, sir, I've already made a special case for it and goes on to say, it's not an article that should ever have gone to sea, still less into action. Yeah. And Mike. <laughs> Again, a bit of a bit of poetry, a bit of imagery here. Is it the object, the dressing case that shouldn't have gone to see? Or is it Aubrey? Right. Ay, ay, aye.
1: Right. Exactly. We're, you know, you're really wondering here. And this, you know, and I'm also getting a little bit of concern here because we keep mentioning stephen has gone, stephen has gone. Jack won't take medical attention from anybody else. I'm going, whoa, 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 whoa. Is is Jack going to have another one of his fabulous wounds here? And Stephen's not there. Is Jack really not made, as you say, to be going to sea right now? Much less into action? Yeah, I'm. 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 Uh, Brian's got me here. I'm. I'm ready to find out what happens.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Some very ominous portents being thrown into the storytelling at this point. As usual, though, Jack's got a really great picture of the whole scene of the battle. He's surveying everything before they go in. He sees this large number of fishing vessels sailing around them. He checks over the Worcester and its crew and everything and everyone seems to be ready. Some of the crew members remind Jack of past victories, and that's a really great way to you know reinforce a bit of confidence, a bit of status in Jack's mind. They look up at these two long moles, these two piers coming out of the harbour, and he sees Frenchmen tied up so that no one can get between them using the curve of the wall, to shield the bow of the larger ship and the stern of the frigate. And he sees also that they're moving their larboard guns across to the mole to make an extra frigate's worth of broadside. And Jack is sort of clicking into action mode here. He meets with his captions. He says, the odds Will be soon too much against them, so they must strike now. But the Frenchmen must fire the first shot. The Frenchmen must break the neutrality of the port. And he it says that once that happens, he intends to engage the 74 yard arm to yard arm and board her in the smoke. He wants the other ships to come up behind him and board over her bows or by way of Worcester's stern. And he gives them instructions for using small arms on her head and forecastle. But listen, he says, gentlemen, listen, not a musket, not a pistol let alone a great gun must be fired until they have fired on us until i give the word loud and clear and mike he invokes some of the naval community punishment and community discipline that we saw earlier on in the book he says tell your officers and midshipmen any man who fires before the word shall have 500 lashes and by god's name i mean 500 lashes and the officer whose division he belongs to shall be broke this is really, really direct, serious, stern command by Jack Aubrey. And for a little while, I'm really, really happy to read about this, Mike. He's got great insight. He's got great strategy. He's got great powers of command and decision. And this looks to me like the old Jack Aubrey getting his game on again. It,
1: it really does, Ian. And, and And, you know... Patterson sort of emphasizes that as they're, you know, Patterson and Babington and Jack are talking there. He says, you know, don't you worry. You know, I've never known a Frenchman to respect a port's neutrality if the odds were in his favor. So everybody sees that, you know, the odds are in the French favor, but we've got Jack and we're going in and we're all excited about this. Uh, so th- They beat the quarters. Jack sends the Marine captain and a party of his men into small boats hidden from view to go around the enemy's stern and then to come up and attack the guns on the mole, capture those guns and use them against the frigate. He has the gunner reload with chain shot and bar to destroy the enemy's boarding netting. The bosun is instructed to lash onto the Frenchman once they approach. And he's, you know, Jack's really pleased with everybody's attitude about how many things have already been taken care of that he's ordering from. And, And we're like you say, and we're pleased to see Jack is like completely in charge, making these decisions, giving these orders. And then he gathers all the men together, he tells them the plan, and he closes it with repeating his warning about the 500 lashes and the crew who who don't necessarily expect Jack to be the best of orators is, is not very inspired by that part of it but then he finishes up and says four rounds brisk and then bored and they're they're happy again they're liking that
0: much better yeah and I think it's really significant that we hear about this not by way of Jack evaluating the plan or other captains taking a part in the plan we hear about this in, in terms of the crew's response to it and the crew's confidence and the crew's esteem for Jack. And that's clearly something that's very important to Jack, and I think that's what's being placed at risk here. Yes. So yeah. K- Killick begrudgingly brings Jack his second best uniform. He, Killick really doesn't want to risk any proper bullion, doesn't want to risk good uniforms, good epaulettes, good anything. Um, but he does also, bless him, include a fresh supply of handkerchiefs so Jack can blow his nose. So while all this dressing and nose blowing is going on, Jack's reflecting on the plan, and he thinks, well, it's a bold plan, but a lot depends on the reaction of the French. If the French think that this transport, the Polyphemus, is carrying a regiment of soldiers, they might lose their confidence, and that might that might sway the battle in favour of you know a, a response by the French.
1: Yeah, he doesn't want to be the one that violates the neutrality. Jack certainly is most worried about that. That really just seems to be uppermost in his mind right
0: now. So they're standing in, and just as they approach the mouth of the Goleta, the mouth of this inlet, to come round the island and engage the Frenchmen, a swarm of shrimp boats come swarming out and cut them off. They slow down, they holler, and the boats swerve off a bit. And as they're about to turn, the shrimp boats come back across and head between the British ships and the French ships. So there's now a score of brown, Latin-sailed shrimpers between Jack's command and the French sitting there with their gun ports open. And Mike, I think this is the moment where O'Brien does what he so often does and undercuts all the planning and the preparation and the anticipation with a little bit of circumstantial change coming out of left field. These shrimp boats. Jack can't move in and grapple the Frenchman without crushing these shrimp boats. The master suggests squeezing them but Jack orders them to haul their wind, and in these seconds, they're committed to sailing past the Frenchmen. So the Worcester, the Dryad, the Polyphemus, and the small boat submarines sail past the Frenchmen, waiting for the guns of the ships and the guns of the battery to open up. I'm, I'm
1: reading this, and I'm just really tense here. I'm wondering if they're about to get blown out of the water. I'm wondering... You know, who are these shrimpers? They've all come out together. They're blowing conches. Is this some innocent festival or celebration? Or is this, you know, kind of conspiring between the French and the locals to you know make sure that the English are the ones that violate the neutrality? Um, I, I don't know. But as you say, this incredibly well-planned strategy is just completely disemboweled at this point.
0: Yeah, and now to, to pile on the agony, the shots don't come. So the French are clearly not on, on a hair trigger to break neutrality as, the, as Jack had perhaps hoped. And they agonizingly sail past watching the small arms men in the French tops following them with their muskets. They see the gleam of the barrels and no shots coming. And they make a turn and they sail past the second island out of the French gun's reach. The, the surprise has been lost. The French now know that Polyphemus, the transport, is no threat. They've seen the Marines in the boats, and they see the French warping even closer to the island so that they can't be boarded. And as they see the the element of surprise ebbing away, the Marines come back aboard, and Captain Harris, this fairly gung-ho Marine captain, says, well, why don't we land men on the island, approach the battery from behind with a fixed bayonet charge, and maybe that could provoke them into firing. But Jack's got this vision of seeing all the crowds gathering on the mole. He's concerned that the Marines charging down the hill might fire first in their enthusiasm and open fire on the locals or even on the Bays troops. And without exact timing, and I think also exact discipline, the Marines could be left to the mercy of the remaining French guns. So Jack says, thank you, I have a new plan. I'm going to go beyond the French, drop a stern anchor and swing around. They start a second run at the French, and they come to the turn. They see the French just about to place a cannonade that would have commanded that spot, and they realise that they have just about missed their opportunity here. They come round into the Frenchman's bay with their axes at the ready, ready to drop the anchor at a run, ready to back the main topsail and come to a halt and wait for the first gun. But neither the shot nor the order comes. They sail past the French, slightly below the Frenchman. They can't see over the Frenchman's hammocks onto her quarter deck. All the French guns are run out. The waist of the French ships are lined with soldiers. And in the tops, they see the same musket barrels pointed at Jack following him. And it's agony. They sit side by side, almost quivering (laughs) with anticipation. No one's firing. And then suddenly a gust of wind sends the Worcester forging slowly ahead. And it says in the text, after a few seconds, it was clear to Jack that the French commander's orders about firing first were as rigidly and strictly obeyed as his own. Jack gives the order to move forward. As he passes the frigate, he looks down, sees a captain, and in the text it says, their eyes meet. And at the same moment, each moved his hat to the other.
1: Wow. Gosh, the tension. You know, there's just no release here. There's uh, and, and You do have, I guess, this moment of this chivalrous gentleman's kind of honor between officers, I, I, which I love, but I'm just... I'm just like all tightened up, going, "Come on, come on, come on! Somebody fire!" and nothing yeah. happens here.
0: I mean, and we've had some chases and some sort of glancing actions and shipwrecks and various other things have happened at sea, but we haven't really had a warm-blooded yard arm to yard arm naval fight for what four or five books now, Mike. And right. as readers, we're desperate, you know. Come on, let's have you know, let's have the thrill of the action. But no, it says in the text, jacked was perfectly convinced that the frenchman in command was determined not to fire the first shot and since there might be some fool among the thousand men moored against the mole he led his ships up and down again fools there may well have been but none in charge of a gun or even a musket and the french were not to be provoked may we not try just once more sir giving them a cheer as we go down asked pullings in his ear no tom It will not do. If we stay here another half hour with the breeze veering like this, we shall never get out of this goddamn bay, wind-bound for weeks, mewed up with these miserable brutes. So he orders the master to take them out of the bay and shape a course for Barca.
1: Wow. You know, you can can only imagine what they're feeling on board here. You can only imagine what Jack is feeling. But O'Brien, to his credit, doesn't force us to do that. He writes about Jack. He took a few turns up and down the quarterdeck in order not to evade the disappointing looks of the crews housing their guns, the sullen, disappointed atmosphere, the flat sense of anti-climax. The ship was profoundly dissatisfied with him. He was profoundly dissatisfied with himself. And here we end chapter six.
0: Mike, this is this is like a reflection on 2020,
1: isn't it? <laughs> it's so true. Oh, my gosh.
0: Oh, oh my gosh. God. So, Mike, we've got to the end of this chapter, and we've got to this moment of looking back and reflecting on what it's been like. And maybe this is a good moment for us to say, as we come to the end of the year, as as 2020 slips its cable and lets fall its top cells and heads back into the fog bank from whence it came, we've got, what, 37, 38 episodes into the podcast. I want to say thank you to you anyway, Mike, for for joining me on the crazy journey. But perhaps we can also take this moment to reflect and say thank you to lots of other people who've helped us out on the podcast. So, we want to say thank you, first of all, to the two people who've suffered most at the hands of me and Mike sinking so much of our time into this podcast. That's Annie Shank and Joy Bradley. Thank you, ladies.
1: Yeah. And and all of our love to you. Yeah. We've had some outstanding guests Karen Milliard, Jeremy Raymond, Tom Horn, Brian Wilson, James Albright, Gord Lacco, Eva Sander. Adam Frante, Rachel McMillan, and most recently, David Curtin. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for joining with our Patreon supporters on Zoom for a a year-end celebration here.
0: Oh, and speaking of the Patreon supporters, we want to say thank you to everybody who's most recently joined our band of supporters on Patreon. You're really helping to cement the future of the podcast and to help us um stay focused on the things that uh, that allow us to make our best contribution so patreon supporters i'm going to name you all I hope this isn't embarrassing david catanio cat nope snarked which i'm pretty sure is a screen name thank you snarked mark pruitt tony millionaire also think that might be a screen name but that's fine thank you tony bella markman alan huffins stephanie nolte nancy salachinsky rob bounton galak another screen name thank you to you mark iliff john scott eric latimer David Michael, Davo Christie, and Mike, looking down the list of people on Patreon, there's some dude called Mike Shank. We should thank him as well.
1: Well, I know, Ian, you devote such an incredible amount of time to this, and and we're trying to defray some of your editing time. So I'm delighted to be a Patreon supporter as well. Uh, Well, thank you. We've got our occasional editor, Sam Luce who's done a phenomenal job. And every once in a while, thanks to your kind Patreon support, Ian gets to spend a little extra time with his bride
0: and family. That's right. So thank you, Sam. We also want to say thank you to all of you who've joined the conversation with us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash lovers whole and on Twitter at whole lovers. All of the great banter and commentary and ideas and suggestions and feedback for the show. We've really enjoyed that. Thank you all.
1: And I think most of all, To all of you, dear listeners, who have followed us all the way from the beginning here to episode 38 and hopefully beyond, a glass of wine with all of you.
0: Amen. So, Mike, what do you say in 2021? Should we have a little bit more Patrick O'Brien?
1: Oh, Ian, I would like that of all things.
0: six gun frigate under the larger of the two batteries gardening the entrance gardening oh, no. guarding the <laughs> Sorry.